We are going to begin here with what appears to be the largest abuse scandal to shake the American Catholic Church yet. After a two-year investigation, a Pennsylvania grand jury today alleged decades of abuse of children by more than 300 men described as predator priests. It detailed the accounts of more than 1,000 children but said there are likely thousands more victims. And the report says church leaders protected the priests in a cover-up that went all the way to the Vatican. If you wish to skip Jake and Richard's introduction to the Catholic Church episodes, please fast forward to the 10 minutes, 30 second marker of the podcast. You just heard audio from CBS Evening News. The voice you heard was CBS Evening News anchor Jeff Glore from a segment of their broadcast on August 14th, 2018, entitled Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report Details Alleged Priest Abuse. To start, if you choose to listen to these upcoming three episodes, please know that the subject matter you are about to hear is quite graphic. Due to the gravity of the story covered uh, on this three-part episode, Jake and I found the regular intro music to be inappropriate and instead have decided to play clips from that CBS Evening News segment intermittently throughout these episodes. You'll hear CBS Evening News anchor Jeff Glore, reporter Nikki Batiste, and Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro. This intro will play at the beginning of each episode. If you are struggling with the recent news surrounding the Catholic Church, we implore you to call the Mental Health Desk for the Wellness Center at 773-508-2530 or the Terry Student Center at the Water Tower Campus at 312-915-6360. Additionally, Father Jerry Overbeck can be reached at 312-915-7186. And if you for any reason need to report an incident of child sexual abuse, God forbid, the toll-free crisis hotline number for Darkness to Light, an organization dedicated to help children and adults needing local information or resources about sexual abuse, can be reached at 866-367-5444. If you are having thoughts of suicide, please do not hesitate to pick up the phone and call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. We spoke to three separate members of the Loyola Chicago Law School community, including Nick Zouch, Amanda Burns, and Professor John Breen. These interviewed covered their personal experiences with Catholicism, as well as the current controversies surrounding the Catholic Church. We approached these interviews with great care, humility, and at times, some levity. We would like to take this time to thank all our three guests for agreeing to speak with us. For those who have not heard of the recent scandal surrounding the Catholic Church, allow us to give a brief synopsis. There are two separate stories. The first is regarding a Pennsylvania grand jury indictment which listed 301 priests and over 1,000 child victims. The second is regarding Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, who has been alleged to have used his authority to sexually harass and abuse young seminarians as well as minors, allegations which Archbishop Carlo Maria Vagano claims that Pope both Pope Benedict XVI and Pope Francis were aware of for years. The details of both stories are quite damning. In regard to the Pennsylvania grand jury indictment, Richard and I will read a few excerpts which have been detailed in an article by the New York Times on August 14, 2018 in an article entitled Catholic Church Sexual Abuse Scandal, seven excerpts from the grand jury report. The New York Times writes, These, those cases include a priest who the grand jury says raped a seven-year-old girl while visiting her in the hospital after she got her tonsils out. Another priest made a nine-year-old boy give him oral sex, then rinse the boy's mouth out with holy water to purify him. The indictment reads, one priest was willing to admit to molesting boys, but denied reports from two girls who had been abused. Quote, they don't have a penis, end quote, he explained. Another priest asked about uh, abusing his parishioners, refused to comment. With my history, he said, anything is possible. Yet another priest finally decided to quit after years of child abuse complaints, but asked for and received a letter of reference for his next job at Walt Disney World. 
The article states the grand jury used strong language to hold leaders of the church accountable for enabling and protecting the abusers. The indictment reads, what we can say, though, is that despite some institutional reform, individual leaders of the church have largely escaped public accountability. Priests were raping little boys and girls, and the men of God who were responsible for them not only did nothing, they hid it all for decades. Monsignors, auxiliary bishops, bishops, archbishops, cardinals have mostly been protected. Many, including named in the, those named in this report, have been promoted. Until that changes, we think it is too early to close the book on the Catholic Church sex scandal. The indictment reads, In another case, a priest raped a girl, got her pregnant, and arranged an abortion. The bishop expressed his feelings in a letter. Quote, This is a difficult time in your life, and I realize how upset you are. I, too, share your grief. End quote. But... The letter was not for the girl. It was addressed to the rapist. On June 28, 2003, a second known victim wrote a statement detailing the sexual abuse committed by Reverend Edward R. Graff on him. The second known victim indicated the, the abuse occurred in the rectory of the Holy Guardian Angels Elementary and Middle School when the second victim was in the seventh grade. The second victim detailed the grooming techniques of Graff. After a grooming period, Graff had him take his pants down and sit down. Graff then fondled the second victim's penis as Graff masturbated. According to the second victim, when he questioned Graff about the abuse, Graff responded by telling the second victim that it was, quote, okay because he was, quote, an instrument of God. The second victim indicated the abuse occurred over the six, next six months as Graff would have the second victim come into his room where Graff would masturbate both himself and the second victim. The second victim believed his friends and other boys were also abused by Graff during the same period. However, the Dietian statement stands in stark contrast to the evidence held within the records of the diocese. While the diocese stated that they were surprised, internal records documenting the opinions of the bishops showed constant references to Graff as being a risk, a concern, and a legal liability. This language was much more consistent with language used in re relation to predatory priests than a priest with a drinking problem. In another instance, one priest was accused of abusing many members of the same family during the 1980s. The indictment reads, at St. John the Evangelist Church, Gaella met a family who warmly embraced him as their parish priest. The family included eight girls and one boy. Gaella began sexually abusing the girls almost immediately upon his appointment to the parish. Gaella sexually abused five of the eight girls. Gaella also abused other relatives of the family. His conduct included a wide array of crimes, cognizable as misdemeanors or felonies under Pennsylvania law. The grand jury also uncovered a ring of predatory priests who shared intelligence or information regarding victims, created pornography using the victims, and exchanged victims among themselves. The indictment reads, George recalled that each of these priests had a group of favored boys who they would take on trips. The boys received gifts, specifically gold cross necklaces. George stated, the priest told me that they, the priest, would give their boys, their altar boys, or their favorite boys, these crosses. So he gave me a big gold cross to wear. The grand jury observed that these crosses served as another purpose beyond grooming of the victims. They were a visible designation that these victims were victims of sexual abuse. They were a signal to other predators that the children had been desensitized to sexual abuse and were optimal targets for further victimization. The other controversy, as previously mentioned, involves Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. This story is not as detailed as the Pennsylvania grand jury indictment, but the scandal still has shaken the Catholic Church and beyond, as it is the first time sexual abuse cover-up allegations have gone as high as the Pope. Cardinal McCarrick is accused of, quote, inappropriately touching men and boys as young as 11. The New York Times reported that between 1994 and 2008, there were multiple reports about the Cardinal's alleged misconduct with adult seminary students made to American bishops, the Pope's representative in Washington, and Pope Benedict XVI. The allegations state the church officials have not only known for decades about McCarrick's abuse allegations, but have even gone so far as to pay off the alleged victims for their silence. One victim, 
former priest Robert Sholek claims that the church paid him $80,000 for agreeing not to speak to the media. McCarrick was very close to Pope John Paul II and spent times with President George W. and First Lady Laura Bush, as well as Secretary of State John Kerry. He was also a regular guest on Meet the Press. He was seen as a, quote, liberal Catholic, but had conservative views on abortion. Because of the sheer volume of information for both of these accusations, certain things are bound to fall through the cracks. As Jake and I attempted to keep these two stories separated in discussions, there are times where ourselves and our guests reference details of the accusations incorrectly. For that, we apologize. We'll now play for you an interview with one of our three guests. We should emphasize that while the list of priests is long, we don't think we got them all. We feel certain that many victims never came forward and that the diocese did not create written records every single time they heard something about abuse. And we're excited today to be joined by Amanda Burns. Uh, Amanda is a third year law student. She is graduating in May of 2019. She's from Buffalo, New York. Completed her undergraduate at Xavier. She was raised Catholic and we uh, want to welcome her now. Hi, Pete. Hey. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for coming on. So, what, man, what's, what's going on? Just excited about the new year. Well, excited to be here. Yeah. All right. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Coke or Pepsi? Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper, good answer. Ooh, curveball. <laughs> curveball. I'm a Sierra Mist guy myself. I think only my grandmother drinks that. <laughs> so she's the other one. She's the other one. <laughs> so this episode is, uh, a lot of it's going to be about the, well, all of it's going to be about what's going on in the Catholic Church today. In of recent news, the Pennsylvania grand jury uh, investigation and along in the Thomas McCarrick accusations and we're uh, and we're also going to be talking about. Well, well, why don't we dive in with you, right. uh, Amanda? What? So you were raised Catholic. Yes. And how? How has that affected your upbringing? How have you? How are you still practicing? Or. Um, I would say that I have actively not been practicing for about two or three years. I've been lethargic in my practicing probably since high school. What, um, what do you mean by that? Um, I would go to church because my parents wanted me to go to church and it was just kind of the culture I was in. Um, I would say most of my high school was Catholic and it was the thing to do. One of the Gronkowskis was in my religion class. so Which one? Glenn. Okay. Um, so that was, and an Olympian was also in my religion class. So, you know, I get to meet high profile people this way. So you're like the only one in your class that didn't turn out to be athletic, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was surrounded by a lot of people in the Catholic faith. My parents are pretty involved in the church. They liked running the fundraisers and um, volunteering. Um, so was this an important part of your life growing up or was it just something you felt like you had to do like was there a moment in your history that you were really jazzed up about Catholicism and looked forward to church and like faith really permeated a, a lot of your life or I would say when I was little I was always really excited because like I have an older brother he's three years older and like he did he was an altar server and then he was asked to go to like church camp and all of those things and i guess i was excited because i was like oh look at he's making friends he's doing all of those things and then you know it was just people take interest in <laughs> the guy um, but then like you know yeah someone i am someone who loves attention and then it was like oh <laughs> i'm not getting any attention and so once that fell away it was like 
I don't know. I was going to church and I was just like, when when am I going to get excited? And I was like, I was looking for something that never happened. And so it was less about social mores and more about social capital for you. <laughs> like, well, I thought that yeah. Jake and I both hate attention. That's why we started this podcast. <laughs> uh. That's why I agreed to do it. <laughs> um, but no, it was always. I thought there was. I thought I was going to have some great epiphany that like this meant something to me and I was searching for it. I felt stupid for a long time because I was like, why don't I feel what these people are feeling? What is it that they're feeling? And eventually I just came to terms with like, it's fine that I don't feel what I, whatever mystery feeling in this institution, like it's just not for me. So, I mean, faith is obviously a huge part of religion and you never really felt like you got over that hump to like living sort of in, in, in an environment of faith or did you have it for a little bit but it was tenuous and you kind of lost it I mean I think so often the evolution of young kids is they have to go to church when they're little and then it kind of becomes in vogue to have like this atheist or agnostic really like awakening in their early teens and then sometimes they find their way back and sometimes they don't I mean was it was it that sort of push and pull for you or um, I would say that's, like, I definitely felt that whole pull away, but, I mean, some of the basic tenets that I learned from church, you know, which was, like, gratefulness, thankfulness, be kind and loving, like, those things I definitely took with me, and mm-hmm. I think those things are what I associate with faith, because I would say I'm still right. a faithful person, I'm just not an institutional person. Sure. Like, right. which I, people give me pushback on that, but. So it's Whatever. more like a, a secular Catholicism kind of thing. Yeah. Cultural? What would you say? <clears throat> like the... Um, not to make everything about me, but that's kind of my thing. <laughs> uh, no. Um, the uh, I'm Jewish. There's Most Jews that I know aren't really practicing Jews. They don't really go to synagogue or do anything. But there's still like a camaraderie that comes along with like meeting other Jews uh, they enjoy the, uh, not so much the prayer aspect, but they do enjoy like the holiday aspect, the gathering for dinner on a Friday night or something like that. And like, uh, it's more of like a community type thing as opposed to just a pure faith-based thing. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I do love the holidays and I do love some kinds of cultural Catholicism things but I wouldn't say like there is a huge just social hierarchy in the Catholic Church and it's just like oh so and so knows so and so and that you know it's oh we totally have that a lot lot of politicking going on politicking in the church I can't stand so whenever I, I feel like I never want to engage in that because it's completely arbitrary and made up on I'm holier than you um, and since I already know that I don't count as that because I've never felt that connection to the church, it's just like I'm not competing in your games. So I did. I did like the answer that you just gave back there, where you said you took some of the, like the distilled values from the church, like gratitude, and um, uh, I. I think an important one that people often overlook is this idea of suffering. I mean, I think that if there's one thing that the Catholic Church gets right is that you're going to suffer throughout your life, you know, and that. You cannot make your ultimate, like, telos, the thing that you aspire to, to end all suffering. It's about coping with suffering. So there is some kind of ancestral wisdom that a lot of these religious texts have kind of baked into them. But it's, it, I agree with you when it comes to, like, the institutional level thing. That's when it gets, that's when I think it loses me as well. Um, and so I think that this is probably a good time to transition into your decision to leave the church. Uh, I know that you spoke to Richard a little bit about some of those reasons, but I guess I'd like to put it to you um, and say, what, what were the uh, kind of hierarchical reasons that you wanted to leave the church? Like, I know that treatment of women was something that spoke to you. So uh, why don't you speak on that for a little bit? I think as I was just kind of, you know, discerning the whole do I actually need to go to church? Do I actually need to be an active member of a church? There was kind of like a point in my life where I was kind of realizing my own worth and kind of 
evaluating the relationships I had in my life and weighing like the kind of respect that I deserve and being okay with letting those relationships go by. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, when I look back at, you know, being younger and, you know, being looked over for my brother, who is not better than me. I don't care that he's a doctor. He's a doctor. Two of them married doctors. Not um, better than me. <laughs> I, was just, I agree. What, he what is not better than me. did the church hmm. give to me? Like, what? Right. Not, you know, I get that it's, I should be giving to the church, but it was like, I never pulled anything out of that relationship that I thought actually was strengthening me on a daily basis mm. and I saw how it was treating other women, that it was, you know, telling people, telling women that, you know, they weren't worth it in these these ABC ways, um, that they can't hold leadership positions, and they're somehow right. inferior to men. That's a big one. Which is implied, because they always say, no, it's just tradition. <laughs> okay, tradition can be changed. Um, right, and that's sort of a naturalistic fallacy, that we've been doing something, therefore that makes it good. You know, or like, okay, yeah. or okay, right? Yeah. I think the obvious one would be, you know, slavery. That, that yeah, that, see, that, that's kind of a big one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the, 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 that gets into the argument of yeah, just because there's a history of it, does it need to maintain? And I, I, I don't know if I could speak to this because I know, uh, for personal experience, we, it was, it was a little tumultuous in the beginning, but there are uh, plenty of female rabbis now. Um, so, but there are definitely not any in the Orthodox community. And while my knowledge of Christianity is limited, uh, I've always just kind of seen Orthodox Judaism and Catholicism as like the two most alike in that regard, where it's like the most religious, the, mo- the, uh, the most... I guess unwillingness to adapt. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how did that transition go? To like, what? To include incorporating female rabbis. Uh, it happened. It well, it happened when I was. Uh, it, it happened when I was much younger. So, I kind of grew up in a. This isn't. Uh, this isn't an odd thing. Okay. But and my synagogue was also one of the. I think the first one in the Southeast to hire, uh, in the conservative movement to hire a female rabbi. So I, I guess in, that was when I was like six or seven. So I guess from that regard, mm-hmm. I didn't really grow up in that synagogue. But there was, there were clear, I mean, you know, women have been, I guess, entering the workforce gradually over the last 100 years. It's only natural for it to, that it, uh, would also take effect in religion, so from a leadership standpoint. So just on a historical timeline, like Judaism started allowing women to rise through the ranks of uh, teachers and like up to the rabbinical position about the same time that the suffragette movement and like women entering the workforce, or uh, was there a little bit of a lag there, or do you know? Rabbinically, like as far as being a rabbi goes, yeah, there was lag. Yeah, I mean that didn't ha- that happened early. In the suffragette movement. Are we talking about the nineteen tens? Because I would say the rabbinical movement happened much later. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but no, I, it was more along. Um, I don't know. I don't really know much about the historical context, but uh, I I know that um, women were always involved in. And I think the same is true in the church. You, you meant you said teaching roles. Do you mean like? Well, I, rabbis are essentially teaching. Yeah. I, I, but there's also, I mean, Talmudic parsing, right? Is, is that exclusively done by rabbis? Right. Uh, so there are, um, uh, a lot of that has to come with like being able to be called to the Torah. Mm-hmm. That is new. Um, that that came with I think along with the allowing women to, uh, into rabbinical schools. Um, and it's also there's also basically three tenets. There's way more branches of Judaism, but the main three are Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. And it was a bottom up. It started with the Reform, and then Conservatives took over, and Orthodox are, are hanging on for dear life. Uh, Follow up question: How yeah. soon do you think Judaism will collapse now that you let women be rabbis? 
I don't know if you've ever <laughs> looked at a history book, but I don't think... I do my best to avoid it. <laughs> I don't think we're going anywhere anytime soon. We're, uh, Mark Twain has a... You're a scrappy bunch, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> Mark Twain has a very uh, eloquent uh, writing on this entitled Concerning the Jews. And it's basically about... Like, it's pretty how, on the nose. How are they... You know, it, they uh, such a small organization, such a small religion, everyone everywhere has tried to kill them and like, <laughs> how are they still around and prospering? How are they prospering? Like, it's like, a, you know, you, you think that, but, uh, you know, what it, how, how, where does the resilience come from? Mm. It, you know, when I first read it, it was kind of a proud thing. Now that you mentioned that, it might be brushed a little bit up on anti-Semitism, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it hanging on my wall. But, uh, um, so. Let's steer this back to Amanda yeah, somehow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Jake, Amanda, who's what just... do you think of God? No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back to our guests. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, well, let's. I just want to name, like, nail down a timeline. So, about what time did you really start questioning the church doctrines or the church as an institution that you want to be a part of? Um, Actually, let's go back earlier. Okay. Yeah. Sure. When, when did you start? Uh, when would you say like you started? I guess questioning your faith would be the first one. Well, that's a tough thing to nail, nail down, down because there was a while where I just did it because it's weird. Like I went and I was just like, I will be bored for an hour. Yeah, and yeah. then I will go home. I think that's just called childhood. But no, okay. yeah, right. Yeah, but that was that was like a long. And even in college, like if my friends would go to church, I would go and be bored. Yeah. And so it was. It wasn't like I was. Going to church and being like, "Yes, I'm being faithful today." It was right, like, right, right. I'm going because you guys still think it's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I like the first time, I guess I started seeing problems was so right before in tenth grade, you're confirmed into the church. You're an adult member, mm-hmm. and you need to take if you don't go to a Catholic school, which I didn't. I went to public school. You have to take religious classes once a week, and. Um, <laughs> They're in somebody's house, and my mom decided that she wanted to teach the religion class because she's a teacher. She taught in Catholic school, and she did not want to drive me once a week. (laughs) Very good. Um, (laughs) So one week was, and this was just incredibly terrible. um, Is the whole church is teaching on abstinence, which they stick in a DVD player or a DVD to do this whole teaching for you. Sorry, I can't wait. (laughs) <laughs> and okay so I kind of I'm sitting in I'm sitting in my living room like, okay. <laughs> and in my all your childhood pictures around on the mat yeah, just, like, oh just, my God. just to further paint the picture ten of your friends <laughs> ten of my like classmates from the school like all the public school kids have to do this none of the Catholic school kids have to do this okay so it's ten classmates you and Glenn your Grinkowski mother and Emily Falls are Olympic hockey <laughs> those are fake <laughs> names those are fake names for anyone who's listening <laughs> <laughs> Those are public figures. <laughs> uh, now, and, now we're getting sued for libel. Uh, they were there. They know this. Was there popcorn? No. <laughs> so they stuck in the DVD, and it was like this guy who was, you know, it was a recording of him giving his talk to a Catholic conference and being like, just this guy who's like 26, being like, I'm still a virgin, and it's great. <laughs> and then it's, it's and it's just this whole like, just what is that called? It begins with a P. Propaganda. And then his fiance comes on, and Ooh. she's like, "I'm not a virgin." Oh but God! Twist. She was like in high school. I, you know, and then she goes into this whole story of how she was like just giving herself away week after week Ooh. and with drugs and alcohol and this whole thing and I'm just like okay this seems a bit one-sided those were the only two options <laughs> <laughs> and then she reclaimed her faith and now this man so graciously is taking her to marry her even though she lived this horrible life of giving away her body and she's I was like, a used commodity what the hell is going on here why am i watching this in my living room and you said 10th grade oh my god uh, <laughs> the, the least awkward time to do that right yeah, um so that was terrible 
was your I, I didn't, this was unclear. Your mother was also in the room. Yeah, that's just, that's just so much worse. <laughs> was there like a debriefing at the end of that? Like you guys like really did an autopsy on the video. It's like, so what did we learn? Like, I honestly was she shooting you the evil eye? The entire time? I don't even remember. Like I blacked out the rest of the conversation. I just had like a natural. throw pillow from the couch and I was just like sitting with it, my face in it. Oh, it was so bad. <laughs> I can imagine. So that was probably the first time I questioned all of this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely the idea that the man who took her in to be his fiance was in some way her own, like, redeemer, you know? That seems like a pretty on-the-nose implication yeah. about the status of women uh, within the Catholic Church. Um, so, I mean... Here's a weird question, and you might not know the answer to this, but it's a it's a two-parter. Are you actively or even passively looking for maybe different sects of Christianity that would better fit your value system, or um, what would the Catholic Church need to do to tell you, okay, where a place that you're going to want to be? Like, what kind of reformation would you need to see, or are you just looking for other religions that may be more in step with you or are you just happy being like a woman without a, without an island you know I mean it, how do you feel about that yeah I mean I don't know and to to its credit I would say the Jesuits are kind of like my guiding post mm. which I really like I went to a Jesuit university and that was where I guess I was questioning a lot of those things because they make you question a lot of sure, things. Sure, sure. And, you know, I guess I'm not really looking for, like, a new place because I feel like I have some guiding points and some guiding principles. Sure, like a, a northern light, so yeah. to speak. But I feel like if I ever, like, moved away from it, I would look for different sects of Christianity or, you know, these, like, the Jesuits, they host a lot of retreats and, you know, they're willing to engage in dialogue. That's mm-hmm. one of the great things about them, mm-hmm. where you don't have to say, like, hi, I'm, like, a diehard believer. Like, now you got to help me. You can come. You can talk to Father Jerry as you are and be like, right, this right. is what I'm questioning. Right. Um, and this is, like, what I'm uncomfortable with. And, you know, they'll talk to you as, like, a person in your personal spiritual development. Right. They They're won't. not just trying to constantly convert you. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know. I, I mean, I, I go to you know, religious services of my friends if they're, you know, wanting to go or, you know, I, I still go if my dad wants to go. Um, and I guess I don't think I really want to belong to an institution until, like, there's a time where I just, I'm waiting for a feeling, basically. Sure. Because I, I see other people feel feelings and love going to church and love that community, and mm-hmm. I'm just like, mm-hmm. I guess I'll just wait for that. Well, I think the community aspect is so important because... For such a long time, I think people found their community through the church, and there was very few other ways to connect with people mm-hmm. uh, on, a, on a large scale. And I, I think that, you know, church communities, for all their shortcomings, uh, definitely do have this sort of social safety net involved in it. Like, you know, in times of crisis mm-hmm. or in times of need, uh, you go to the church. Uh, in yeah. times of trouble, Mother Mary turns to me. Exactly. Speaking words of wisdom. Um, see, now we just infringe copyright again. Uh, <laughs> um, so that's something that I wish we could inculcate in like a non-institutionalized way. Like if, if you know, the neighborhood meant anything anymore, like which it, it, it so doesn't. Like, uh, especially I think in... Judaism, this is even more of a thing where, like, Jewish communities are built around, like, really, you go and make a plea to the rabbi, right? I mean, this would probably be something for, for like, monetary help, like you're sick or something like this. I mean, Shapiro talks about this Yeah, you uh, you go to, because you go to uh, uh, the church, that's like the, the, the synagogue first. Right. To, uh, the, and, uh, um, it's yeah I mean it's always you know it's a it just makes sense it's always going to be easier to get help from people you know than people you don't right so going to charities 
while they do great work, um, there's there may be some vetting process. There may be some you know and right. and a lot of times when you're dealing with people in these communities, they need help now. There's mm-hmm. not like it's not. We'll okay. We'll get back to you in two weeks. Well, they might lose their house in two weeks. They might you know and it's it's I mean, we need help right now. So yeah, there is. Uh, it's also done in a quiet manner. Mm-hmm. In my yeah, in my experience, uh, I guess it, the uh, someone will go to the, and you also don't necessarily go to the rabbi. Uh, you'll go to um, uh, you can, and he will ask for certain people discreetly in the community to help. Uh, but it's also a they, they try to be a comfortable way to for like you know a sense of community you you go to somebody that you know that that hey, you that you respect that respects you uh and say you know you're able to pull them aside and say look I, i'm can you float me x amount for however long something like that or do you happen to have any this and you know th- there's that there, it's, there's also a the communal aspect comes in a lot when talking about like uh neighborhoods and things like that uh so, it's not necessarily through the church or through the synagogue, mm. uh, but it can be, and it certainly provides a mechanism for that. Um, but enough about me. Uh, so, how do I? How do we tie this in it back? Um, I guess feel free to. I mean, feel free to not answer any question we ask. But uh, Jake asked, are, uh, are you interested in finding another denomination? I think we missed a fundamental question, which uh, it would be your belief in God. Do you believe in a God? Do you, in, is there like a... Or you know, atheist, agnostic, that kind of, or or is it you just you do you just have a certain problem with the Catholic Church or I don't know. Yeah, I I totally believe in God, and in a lot of ways, I think I believe in Jesus too. I mean, why not? Um, (laughs) I give give some reasons. (laughs) Seems Um, nice, (laughs) but Uh, he's a great guy, good good protagonist, uh, and I think. I can't attribute like the quote to the right person, but you know the whole like God in all things kind of mentality, and I think that has been incredibly easy to pick up. That like you know you can see God in everything you do, every relationship you have, and you know if you take time to like step back and be truly thankful for everything that you have, it's so easy to see God and to remain like um, just keep your mind on the right path to keep doing good things, or you know when you're weighing is this actually right or wrong it's mm-hmm. easy to keep that bigger picture in mind that there is a higher power in my opinion um so i yeah i've always believed in god i just have never needed to find him in an institution it's, it's interesting uh that you say that because more and more as of late and this is something i actually attribute to being in law school where uh reason and logic can are much more persuasive to you once that's sort of the world that you're thrown into like law school and um i've been thinking about a lot more like how do you prove god and like there are a lot of logical models that really help you to conceptualize that and i'm sure richard is familiar with what i'm about to talk about because we basically yeah. listen to all the same people, yeah. but like uh, if, like the Aristotelian model of God, uh, really actually hit home for me. Where he has this idea that everything has a purpose and that was set in motion. So like it has to be set in motion by something, right? Mm-hmm. And then you could just do infinite regressions back to the point where there's something that was already in motion that set everything else in motion, and that is one's conceptualization of God. Um, Another one of which is regarding the Big Bang theory. Yeah, it's like you know the the uh, the biggest uh, argument for atheism is 
would be the Big Bang Theory. Right. And the argument is, okay, so there was a Big Bang and then the universe was created. I'm sure I'm dumbing that way down, but the what caused the Big Bang? Right. Because it can't be nothing, because you can't have something from nothing. Right. So it had to be, and if it's not a physical something that created it, it's a metaphysical something that created it, and that metaphysical thing would be God, and because, because that's just, you know, that's the argument, but that argument goes into, or that, I guess you would call it proof, I guess, would go into the, the theory that's more to, like, that also would help explain that why there's so many different religions because we don't necessarily know what to believe. Right. Except there had to be something before there was something. There right. couldn't have been nothing. There has to be a self-actualizing yeah. thing that can actualize other things. Yeah. Um, it, it's either physical or metaphysical, and if it's metaphysical, that actually would help prove the existence of God. So. Right. And this is another shortcoming that I think atheism has is how people who are ardent atheists still live in a way that they have free will and they still live in a way that there is some sort of universal morality but the the ability to like the ability to devise a system of moral code if you're just living in a purely factual world is not obvious how do you look at a set of facts and derive values um, and so I mean I guess the ardently religious person's response to that would be like okay well the, the morals come from God but like that's not self-evident either, right? So it's not obvious to me how you answer these questions, but it has to be, at the very least, a mixture of the both, right? There has to be some kind of supreme plan, the unmoved mover, and that would make human beings intrinsically good, right? I mean, because we could all agree, thou shalt not kill, but why not? You know, what makes a, a human intrinsically valuable? Their ability to reason? That's not inherently valuable either. So there, there is this problem, and this is the David Hume problem. How do you get from is to ought? And I, I think that you know faith really plays a big picture in that. I mean, at least we live in a way that it does, even if we profess that we don't. Interesting. We need to. to we don't have much time with the man, so we do need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to get back, but I do. Yeah. Want to make, <laughs> I do want to make this point uh, before we get there. Um, from the Hebrew text. It actually says, thou shalt not murder. Mm. It doesn't say, thou shalt not kill. Mm-hmm. So, and and, yeah, and, <laughs> and, and and I'm sure we're going to be doing an episode on the death penalty soon. Yeah. And so that would probably come back in. But uh, as far as morality and especially the Jesuit tradition and all that. But, uh, yeah, it's been interpreted. that I, I found that fascinating when I first heard that, that it's been interpreted differently. The... Ten commandment, Commandments originally were, Thou shalt not murder, not Thou shalt not kill. Okay. Which does imply that there are things that you can kill for. Right, yeah, right. Um, Self-defense. Being I mean, even you'd have to toy with the definition of murder there, because can you equate murder to all homicide? Like, not all death is murder, right? Death of humans. Right. We... Uh, you're getting into more modern thing. Like, there was, I'm almost certain that there was no word for manslaughter back then. Yeah, I don't know if there's an Aramaic tradition of manslaughter. Yeah. (laughs) So, but we've gone off the rails. Okay, yeah, we've gone off the rails. Let's Let's get back. Yeah, we have our patient guest here. Um, (laughs) We could, too. Uh, um, So, okay. So, uh, should we inch into this? Recent yeah. news, yeah. I think we should get some of Amanda's thoughts on this. There's really two different stories right. happening. Yeah. Um. I, I personally find one more pressing. That would be the child abuse. The but, rampant yeah, child abuse. Yeah. Rampant child abuse. But there is also this McCarrick story that I, I guess you could tie into like the whole uh, current Me Too movement. Right. Where he was clearly using his power to uh, sleep with uh, seminarians, mm-hmm. um, but let's uh, 
let's start in with the uh, with the Pennsylvania grand jury. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty damning. Uh, Doesn't look good for them. Yeah, <laughs> that was not that that was not a great week to be a Catholic. Um, but um, this, so I think it went back to the 1940s. And it's over a thousand kids, over three hundred priests, and I, I don't, I don't want to say what's your take on it. I guess what, from someone who was raised in the Catholic Church, and this is this is not the first time we've heard this story. We, you know, from the Boston Globe right after nine eleven. Spotlight, yeah. Yeah, from Spotlight. Um, great movie. Check it out. Uh, yeah, mm. uh, but. Um, <laughs> So it's not the first time we've heard the story, but there does feel to be something different about this. Yeah, it seems like because you knew we knew about the systematic cover-ups and things like that, but there there was a playbook in, a basic playbook involved in this one of certain languages they're using, the amount of kids, the amount of victims, the amount of perpetrators uh, that are accused. It, it's a different level. I guess I think the Boston one only they had something like ninety priests in the beginning, and then it exploded into all the scandals that worldwide where everyone started coming forward. So I guess uh, as someone who grew up in the church, what is your immediate thought when thing when what was your immediate thought with that story, bro? Or even emotion, I would say. Uh, just any reaction. Yeah. Generally, sad. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. it's not fair. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a happy time. It was... I mean, it's... It's hard because... Again, now... Like, I'm in a point, and I think a lot of people are, you know... Maybe it's just being in your mid-20s or maybe there's a social movement going around um, of just kind of understanding how power impacts others. Mm. And I don't, like, I don't know if it's just, like, the internet or technology that's really brought to light how we can expose people who have just been blatantly abusing power. And I think, you're right, like, I think there's a huge tie-in with the Me Too movement because all the Me Too movement is really doing is exposing people who have exerted power over them unfairly because of, you know, some traditional sense of hierarchy. In this case, it's just priests being, having more power over lay people because of, I don't know, God said they're better. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I would call it absolute power. That's the whole, you know, <laughs> it's, what it was the... Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I forgot who said that. Absolute power We'll, we'll edit that in. <laughs> um, but I think now, like, when that broke, it, it just kind of seemed like, of course, now, you know, I feel comfortable challenging power um, where I am at life, and a lot of that is because I'm becoming a lawyer, and I'm becoming the powerful, and I'm feel, feeling like I'm now in a position to challenge other people in power because I'm going to have the letters JD after my name, so God damn it, you can't bring me down. Like, almost a responsibility to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's so interesting, and it is strange to juxtapose these two news, to, news stories with the Me Too movement, and it really shines a light on the fact that, like, just how insulated the Catholic Church is, right? I mean... A Twitter mob could pressure somebody out of a job within like 12 minutes during the Me Too movement. I mean, nobody was safe. And yet, Pope Francis gets to remain silent for like two and a half weeks on this whole thing. And he still has a job. He's come forward on the uh, child. He said very few things on the child abuse. Right. He said he's specifically remained silent on the McCarrick thing. Right. So I do think, yeah, there's... But that, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, just want to I don't know if I had that. too much more to say. But, like, if you look at Joe Arpaio during the Penn State scandal, I mean, Joe Arpaio. Joe Paterno. Joe Paterno. Yeah. yeah, okay. Arpaio was the guy in Arizona. Understood. He, technically, he's still the guy in Arizona. <laughs> technically, he's still the guy. Yeah. Uh, Joe Paterno, 
during the whole Penn State scandal, uh, even he, who was a legend at that school, even he was not, you know, free from criticism. And 46 years took him down in four days. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it's amazing it actually took that long. But there are still believers. There are still people who say he didn't do it, who don't yeah. care yeah. about the proof, who are right. willing to turn a blind eye. Now multiply that by the most powerful religion by the world. Yeah, right. I mean, besides football. <laughs> and, well, no. They're not even gun battle. <laughs> they're proving right now, not besides football. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that, again, that brought Paterno down. 46 years uh, as the head coach, I think 66 at the school as an assistant coach. Like, that's – it. Uh, he had a statue. Yeah, you know, like, stat- <laughs> most wins in college football history. It was not – like, that was the – most earth-shattering thing when you heard it, and uh, it, it, it was just, uh, but it was such a, for everyone that wasn't at Penn State or had no ties to Penn State, it was such a simple tr- uh, move to clear house, to fire everyone, all four mm-hmm. guys that were involved that were uh, indicted in the investigation. It was such a clear move to fire Paterno, you can't, uh, you can't, it, it, it's, it was so apparent that more could have been done, that Sandusky's keys should have been taken away. He should, you know, they banned him from the locker room with the kids, but he was still going, and he still had access, he still had keys. It, at a certain, you know, they say Joe Paterno did his job, he went to the police, but the police didn't act. That does not make it okay to allow him to continue to use your facilities, mm-hmm. it, it's just it, it's it, you you shut it down. And the fact that, and that's why every time it makes it, it irritates me beyond end that when people say this isn't a football story, I'm sorry, but the head coach, the it was an assistant football coach who there is some slight evidence that his job was taken away because of the earlier accusations. It's a it, it's not quite tied to that. There's other things. I want to be fair about that point. But uh, I don't even know what you're talking about. At with, this point. with Jerry Sandusky. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Uh, the first accusation was in 1998. His last year coaching was in 1999. So it, it, you can clearly see that, that you know he was supposed to be the guy who took over for Paterno. You can clearly see uh, they knew they had a problem. They they didn't they didn't act, and it's it was such a clear these guys have to go that no one is above criticism so when it comes to the church and when it comes to Pope Francis and when it comes to everyone that's being shuffled around I guess as somebody who grew up Catholic is there a way for you to rationalize that um maybe not as it's also the first time it's been connected to the actual Pope so there's that and I think a lot of the reason why Pope Benedict stepped down is because I think this was just a logistical move of, of like, how do we save face, save face when this breaks because we know it's going to break soon. And they elected as Pope probably the most likable, most liberal, progressive um, guy who could really... Pope Francis is the only hope to save the Catholic Church, and I think they knew that. I, like it's it's a tactical move, and he's a great man in a lot of ways, but his job is to save the church, and he knew this was going on, and his it's just protection. I I almost have a different, but related theory. It borders on conspiratorial, but I wonder <laughs> if they elected the next pope who would get the most favorable and insulated treatment by the media. Like, they knew that, like, this tornado was coming their way, Mm -hmm. like, that there were investigations going on, and that they put a guy in power who would go out and say a lot of good things about climate change and gay rights and abortion and all these things. He hasn't changed on abortion. Oh, he hasn't. He hasn't wavered on abortion. My bad. Uh, He would go out and say all these things, and, uh, you know, the the medium are going to give him as much of a benefit of doubt of any pope in like papal history, you know, I mean, it's just like, I wonder if there was a little bit of strategy going on there too. 
That's, that, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely that's a little for the listener's sake. Amanda just furrowed her brow and shook her head at me <laughs> as if I just said the most obvious thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's actually a little infuriating. To right. Me because is. <laughs> at a certain point, that that's that's you covering your own behind by playing off other people's liberalism, and that's, I mean. It's Lord, an effective we're, strategy. Yeah, well, we're in a pretty toxic environment, and that to me is as toxic as it gets. We've got a child rape scandal coming down, so let's put a guy in who will say nice things about gay people to right. soften the blow. Right. That's such a like. And I, I don't mean to say that Francis isn't genuine in those in those issues that he's been championing and that are yeah. are very popular. Uh, I mean, but. How long do you get to stay silent about an abuse scandal and still claim that you care about kids? I mean, how long do you get to do that? How long do you get to claim the moral high ground? Right, exactly. How can you be a moral authority and one that's really important, I think, to Western tradition? Uh, the church and, and Judeo-Christian values, I think, shaped a lot of the good things in our society. But, like, how long can you, out of one side of your mouth, say you care about kids, but I'm of the other side of your mouth remain completely silent about rampant sexual abuse. So, yeah. Well, I guess we'll find out, won't we? Yeah. I will tell. Uh, uh, well, Amanda, I know you have to run to class very shortly. Yeah, What's yeah. that? Yeah, All right, she hang, says she can hang a Oh, okay, yeah, I, don't, I just don't want to keep you. Want no. to keep me up. Uh, no, we just want, want to make sure you weren't late to your class. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I, Jake and I were talking about this not too long ago. I, I've tried. There's a there was an article in the New York Times. I forgot where what they did, but it was basically a story on a singular church uh, in I believe Allentown, and it was about a minister that they had for 34 years, and he retired a few years early, and uh, he was in this grand jury uh, testimony or I don't know you indictment yeah. grand jury indictment right 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 McCarrick or something was that his last name no McCarrick was the guy in uh, in DC oh. this was a different guy but he okay. um, uh, <laughs> he was there for 34 years there's denial in the community he was such a uh Foundation, such a moral compass to everybody in the community that it was so shocking. And it's really hard for me to uh, even try to imagine what that would be like because it is. I, I've I've had uh, uh, some rabbis that have been very influential. And if I were to find that out that that's how they were, it would be a, I'm not sure I would register it mentally. Mm -hmm. It would be such a shock. And so like this guy who has been the comp moral compass, that again, like the, the bedrock of the community, he has helped thousands of people. And then you hear his help didn't really make up for exactly all what we're finding out now. It, it would be such a night and day kind of uh, kind of moment but I I, uh, I guess what would you uh, what are your hang up with this did you have any influences like that and it, and as far as and I, I'm really throwing this on you as where I like had a lot of time to think about it but I guess as somebody from the inside, what would that internal struggle be like? I'm sure that being raised in this environment, in this uh, that even the stories from 2002 were as stunning. But I don't know. How do you how do you deal with your hero turning into a villain on the drop of a dime? Well, I can't say that I've. You know, any, I've that. never looked up to any priest as a hero. I mean, I've looked up to them just as people. Um, but, and again, I'll, I'll circle back to the Me Too movement where this is something I had to face a lot because, you know, as it's coming up, you know, there's a moment when I have to sit and think, 
this, these are my friends. These are people I went to school with. These are, like, in some cases, people I, I would trust my life with have hurt someone in such an extreme way, have hurt someone I'm close to in such an extreme way. And it's, I can never know that about all of my friends. I'm not going to, like, they could hurt someone and they won't even know. And that's, I mean, again, I can't really talk about it in the church, but, like, when I try to talk about, you know, figuring out if, if I learn that, you know, one of my best friends who's a guy has hurt someone, you know, going through rebuilding trust and going through just actually understanding what forgiveness is, which I think was tough because, I mean, I grew up a very privileged life and I think, you know, a lot of us have where you don't really have to learn what forgiveness is until much later in life because mm -hmm. a lot of us haven't been hurt so exceptionally like this right until yeah. later in life and i think that's what the me too movement is going for me i know we're not talking about it is learning what forgiveness looks like to some people that i have trusted and loved and you know really valued their relationship and i guess yeah, and figuring out what their path to redemption should be you know like what you would have to see and how you forgive i mean i'm uh, not sure they're redeemable the, are you talking about the priests? Or you I'm talking about the Me Too movement. Oh. And even even that has two poles to it, right? I mean, this is a conversation that's going on because Louie came back this week, obviously. <laughs> and there was, there, was this question, there was this question that was put out on the internet. Like, I think it was Michael Ian Black, the comedian, who like said, Me Too has to have offered men a path to redemption. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. I didn't see it. Oh, well, they tore him to shreds, uh, <laughs> as Twitter does, you know. But um, it's definitely a question, and uh, not one that I can easily conjure an answer to. Yeah. yeah. So as, as far as the Me Too, I think I was the one that brought that up first. I didn't mean to lead us it's, into this, and I apologize. It's easier for me to talk about because I have no direct connection to the church on this point. Right, yeah, right, right, right. Well, but it is... It seems like a natural yeah. corollary, an ancillary conversation. I would even say it's not only related. It's it's part... I would, I would say it's part of the movement. Absolutely. Not so much the priests, uh, because, well, they would be, but I, I, I always label child molestation and a completely different category because I want to make sure mentally it remains the absolute yeah I'm right. gonna say it, the absolute worst thing somebody can do um, yeah yeah uh, I don't really breach in the controversial territory there uh, so controversial but, yeah, but, as, <laughs> but as far as like the the me too with the with Colonel McCarrick there were uh, the allegations are basically that he was uh, um, Taking seminarians to his beach house, uh, sleeping with them, and uh, uh, and uh, in a few cases, adamantly against their will, um, and it is a. What am I trying to say here? I don't know, but I'd like to back up and note that a cardinal has a beach house. <laughs> Aren't they supposed to live humbly? <laughs> it had to be a church house. I thought that too when I read the article. I was like, "That's odd." But yeah, uh, right. Aren't they? In that the point? Aren't you supposed to? You have zero. Like possessions? renounce your earthly possessions. Yeah. But um, and so there's that, and and there's uh, this. I don't want to get his title wrong I think it's Archbishop Vagano but if I'm wrong I apologize but uh, the, he uh, he basically wrote this 11 page letter saying that like Francis or Francis and Benedict both knew of the uh, controversy and but not even on the controversy of the accusations and Benedict silenced him and then when Francis came along he allowed him to uh, uh, rejoin the he lifted the sanctions. Yeah, yeah lifted the sanctions. He, yeah. uh, thank you. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's the the media has started to accuse, and there are parts of his eleven page uh, testimony of Vagano's eleven page testimony that 
do brush up on homophobia, but they're starting to label it as the only reason he has a problem with it is because he's homophobic. Or they're saying far-right conservative yeah. Catholics. Uh, yeah. Right. As if th those persuasions have any bearing on identifying sexual molestation. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> not, this is the molestation. This is the, the priest. I think okay. there was one accusation of a 16-year-old girl, actually. So there was a molestation accusation. But, or right. A, yeah, but this was just of the sleeping with the priest, the, the seminarians. The seminarians, right. And uh, I... I I cringe every time I read that because it's such, it, it sounds almost like what your point you were making about Francis where they installed this guy to kind of soften the blow later. But I'm sorry, you, it, you don't, you know what? No, I don't apologize. Uh, when Kevin Spacey got his accusations, that was when he took the time to come out of the closet. And the gay community immediately said, you do not get to hide behind the rainbow for this. <clears throat> I could not agree with this more. The, the, just because this guy's a priest, just because you like this pope, I think it's repulsive that they're trying to label this as some kind of anti-gay argument when in reality this guy is, is sh this should be the clearest cut case of a guy abusing his own power for sexual gratification. And it's, it is disgusting. It's immoral. The fact that he was higher up in the church and was supposed to exhibit high morals. I don't. I don't know. I find it reprehensible that Francis won't say a word about it. He's taken this vow of silence, and I've gone on too long. Amanda, please jump in. Whatever. Uh, uh, whatever you. Uh, whatever you want to close yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess. It's hard to reconcile all of that, even in my mind and everything. I think just generally as a society, we need to have a long talk about power and how we're abusing power and where power exists. And I think a lot of those conversations are starting. Mm -hmm. But, and I don't know, I struggle with this. But again, with going, I talked a little bit about forgiveness and like, I do, I don't want to hold... Like, I don't want to live in this world where we just put people in a box of shame and they have to be ashamed forever. Exactly. And forever. And I do believe in a lot of what the church has taught me, those core tenets, and I don't want those to go away. And, you know, I, I would hate to see, you know, I think a lot of things can change once you recognize those powers. Um, and, it, yeah, I think it all comes down to recognizing, reconciling with power and acknowledging that we've been abusing this power. So, thanks right. for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. We appreciate you coming on and whatever. Yeah, thanks for hearing us out. Nearly 100 of the accused clergy are from the Pittsburgh Diocese alone, where Donald Worrell, the current Cardinal of Washington, D.C., was the bishop for 18 years. Do you think right now, today, children are being abused at the hands of priests in the Catholic Church? I'm not sure that there's any way you can guarantee that there won't ever be a failure in the life of any priest going into the future. You can't do more than give your very best to trying to eradicate a problem. You've been listening to Dialogue De Novo. Until next time, thanks for hearing us out. Dialogue De Novo is produced by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Executive producers Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Supervising producer Michael Kaufman. Technical producers Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Edited by Richard Leibovitz. Audio mixed by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Music written by Jimmy Thomas. Music performed by Bobby Day. Dialogue De Novo is a Loyola University Chicago School of Law student-initiated capstone project founded by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Technical production made possible by SoundCloud. Copyright 2018.